Book of the Month. Follow the link to buy your copy. During the months of July and August, we'll be looking at John Knox, Scotland's reformer. If you'd like to learn more about John Knox, and there is a lot to learn, there's plenty of resources online. And if you prefer books, a good starting point is an excellent little primer, John Knox, Fearless Faith, by Stephen Lawson. It's just 100 pages, and it's packed with fast-moving information about Knox. And there's a link to buy the book on www.semper-reformata.com throughout July and August. Just follow the link in the episode notes. The book costs just £5.49. A small part of that goes to support this podcast. The Book of the Month, John Knox, Fearless Faith, by Stephen Lawson. Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Chapter 8, verse 1, the end of the second scene of Revelation. And I'm asking the question this evening, who then can stand? Because we have looked through Revelation chapter 6 and we have seen that Christians suffer in this present age and that many are martyred for their testimony and for the word of God. And we have noticed that and we've learned that they are in glory because of Christ, not because of their faithfulness, not because of their martyrdom, but because of Jesus who died for them and whose blood has atoned for their sins. At the end of chapter 6, we saw how as the end of this age approaches, how God would finally bring about the end of this age as he, on the last day, pours out his terrible wrath, the dreadful wrath of God upon this present world, upon unrepentant sinners. And Revelation 6 then ends with this very important question, taking into account the terror and the horror of the final verses of Revelation 6, describing that last day. Revelation 6 and 17 asks, The great day of God's wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And the answer to that question is Revelation chapter 7. That's why we're going to look at it this evening. I want to look first of all at verse 1 to 3. And I want you to notice that the sealed are secure in that day. John's vision is continuing. It's a, a dramatic scene. Just as the earth is being destroyed, there is this huge development in chapter 7. And in the first three verses, four angels appear. And these angels symbolically are holding back the four winds of the earth. And these are very graphic images. And then another angel appears, arises, the Bible tells us, and he addresses these first four angels. And he says in verse 3, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, 
till we have sealed the servants of our God. Now what does this sealing mean? Well the word sealing in the most practical senses uh, as we would know it simply means to be protected. To be looked after, to be protected from anything trying to tamper with with what is beyond the seal. Let me give you a short illustration. When I was a wee boy growing up, we had in our house something called a gas meter. Some of you might remember a gas meter. What you had to do in order to cook was you had to get a shilling and put it in the gas meter. Some of you don't remember what a shilling is, but it's 5p. And your 5p went into the gas meter, only it was a shilling in those days. And when I was a wee boy, my mother used to send me down to the bus stop. And when the bus would put up, I would jump on. And before the bus, there was no bus driver in those days, it was a conductor. So you would jump on the back of the bus and you'd say to the conductor, Mister, have you any single shillings? And if the conductor had any sense, he'd chuck you off the bus right away. Or if he was feeling generous, he would say, what have you got, son? I've only got a, 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 a two-shilling piece. Well, here's two-shilling coins. And you would take those back, and your mother would use those for the gas meter. But there were some very ingenious people in our street. And they figured out a way to cheat the gas man. They figured out that you could tamper with the meter and get more gas. Of course, it wasn't too long before the council caught that on. What they did was they sealed the meters. They put a little strip of metal on the meter with a seal on it, and they stamped it. And if you tampered with the meter or tried to put, tried to get more gas for your shilling, then it would soon be found out and you'd be prosecuted because the seal protected the meter. So it's a mark of protection. And it's also a mark of ownership. Um, to be sealed is sometimes a sign that you are owned by someone. So in the Song of Solomon, for example, in Song of Solomon chapter 8 and verse 6, we read, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's a sign of ownership. And it's a sign of reality, authenticity. Um, For example, you might qualify at a college and you get a certificate. And when the certificate is given, it's maybe just a simple piece of paper these days. Because everything's digital and you can check everything online. But in days gone by, that wouldn't be the case. Somebody could forge a piece of paper. So what you would do is you'd get your certificate and the college would have put a seal on it. A seal that authenticated the fact that it was real and genuine. So a seal is to be protected. A seal is to be owned. A seal is to be real. Now the Christian is sealed in every one of those respects. We are protected by God. We are owned by Christ who has bought us by his precious blood. And we are authenticated. We live real Christian lives by the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us. Let's see some biblical proof. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20 tells us that you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 
says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but received the spirit of adoption. We have received the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 tells us that in him you also trusted. After that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Second Timothy. Um, Second Timothy in chapter 2, and we read very... Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong reference. I told I knew this would happen. First uh, Peter, rather. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 tells us, You know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. So we are bought and owned and protected, and the Holy Spirit indwells us, guaranteeing our authenticity as Christians. But there's one thing more about these people who are sealed. And if you look at the verse in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, you'll see that they are sealed in their foreheads. And what does that mean? Well, there's a cross-reference to this. There's a parallel reference. And that parallel reference is found in Revelation chapter 14. And just turn to that in your Bible. Because when we're in Revelation, it's easy to find, to find quickly. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. And here, in a different parallel scene, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him, an hundred and forty and four thousand, we'll come back to that in a moment, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So we learn there that this mark of sealing is on their forehead, and that seal is the name of the father. We are his. We're adopted into his family. That's why we're so protected. That's why the sealed are secure. That's why when that that last day comes, and when God pours out his wrath upon sin, that's why we are able to be safe. Because we have on our foreheads the mark of God the Father. The opposite mark to the mark of the people who are not Christians to those who do not belong to the Lord. Turn with me, please, to Revelation 20. And we'll look at Revelation 20 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. And down at the bottom of the verse, we're not going down the whole verse for the sake of time, but it's talking about those who are martyrs for the Lord Jesus, for the word of God again, who had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So there's an opposite to this mark. There are those who are the Lord's, who are marked out as his by the seal of authenticity to be protected, to be owned, to be real in their Christianity. And there are those who have another mark, a mark that we might call 
the mark of the beast. But we come to that perhaps some other time. So what is our question? The question is, on the great day of God's wrath, who can stand? And the answer is, all of those who belong to Christ. All of those who are his. All of those who are protected by the Father. All of those who are owned by the Son. All of those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit guaranteeing the authenticity of their faith. Let's move on. And let's look at the symbolism of the numbers in verse 4 and verse 9. So verse 4 says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 9 then says, After this I beheld... And lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palms in their hands. Now we've already learned, I hope, that in Revelation all the numbers and images are symbolic. We had... um, Interesting confirmation of that through the week. Our good brother Mark Fitzpatrick on Facebook uh, helped me with this and came rushing to my aid and posted that, uh, what I said last week, that the figure 666 was a symbolic number. And, of course, immediately there was a pylon uh, all across Facebook. But he's capable for it, isn't he? He's a man that can, that can stand that kind of pressure. Revelation, all the numbers in Revelation, all the images are symbolic. And John hears a new number, and it's the number of those who are sealed. Now, I want to pause here just for a wee moment, because the pseudo-Christian cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, attach a great importance to this number. They think that only 144,000 people are going to go to heaven. And the rest of their cult are going to live somewhere else. And that's not the only dangerous heresy that they hold, sure it's not. I remember meeting three ladies from Belfast on a foreign holiday, and we got talking, and eventually, as you do, they asked, not me, but they asked my wife what I did for a living, and my wife said, this is way back in maybe 20 years ago, my wife said, oh, he's a minister in a church, and they confessed then that they were Jehovah Witnesses. And they said to her and to me, but you know, even though we're Jehovah's Witnesses, we, we love Jesus too. Well, you see, they don't. And I can prove it, they don't, from their own words. And they certainly don't worship Jesus. Um, uh, let me explain from jw.org, which I looked up through the weekend. It says, We take Jesus at his word when he said the Father is greater than I am, so we do not worship Jesus. That seems fairly straightforward to me, doesn't it? The Jesus that they teach was a Jesus who is a false Jesus. 
A Jesus who was not God, a Jesus who was a created being, a Jesus who is not coexistent with the Father, a serious deviation from the Christian truth among very many other deviations. And when it comes to this 144,000, they are seriously off course too. So, so let's return to the text of Revelation 7 and let's compare verse 4 and verse 9. So we look at verse 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, the number of those who are sealed by God, the believers who are protected by the Father and owned by the Son. So who are these people? We have just said that the people who are sealed, this is the number of them that were sealed. And I have just said to you in my first little section of this talk, that all of the people of God are the sealed who will stand on that day, every one of us, those who are protected by the Father, owned by the Son, authenticated by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now we're finding out that the sealed are only 144,000. Why is that? Well, there's something very significant. Look at the text. It's very important to read the text. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. Look at verse 9. Compare it. After this, I beheld, I saw. So you see, in verse 4, John hears. And in verse 9, John sees. And there's something slightly different between what he hears and what he sees. John hears this numbers spoken, the 144,000. He doesn't see them. In verse 9, he sees another number, but the 144,000 are not visible to him, and I venture to say to any other man either. They are what we would call the invisible church. They are seen only by God. Now, why is this? It's because this number is symbolic of completeness. In this case, the completeness of the church, the entire church from every age, from every nation, which only God sees. He sees every single saint. He chose every single one of them. He died for every single one of them. And the Holy Spirit indwells every single one of them. And every single believer is sealed with the Spirit. It tells us so in God's Word. Some people might say, but isn't this just the Jews? Because if you look at verse 5 down to verse 8, what's given appears to be a list of the tribes of Israel at first glance. But it's not, is it, when you read it? It's not a reference to the Jews, the physical nation of Israel, because John hearing this would have known that ten of those tribes were lost and are gone. They, they were taken away into captivity in 722 BC under Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria and they were never heard of again. And because the list of tribes that's given here in verse 5 to verse 8 have two tribes missing. The tribes of Ephraim and the tribes of Dan. 
And because in a list of the tribes of Israel, look at verse 5, in a list of the tribes of Israel, Reuben would be first. But here it's not. The head of this list is the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, isn't he? You've got this list. But it's not a list of the tribes of Israel. It's a list of the complete church. It's symbolic of the completeness of God's Israel, the whole Israel, all of those who are his from both Old Testament and New Testament. It's symbolic. Let's do the sums. There's 12 by 12 by 1,000, 144,000. 12 tribes representing the tribes of the Old Testament saints. 12 apostles representing the 12 New Testament disciples of Jesus. Then multiply that by 1,000. 1,000, says Hendrickson, is the perfect cube. 10 by 10 by 10 complete and entire, with not a single believer omitted. If you turn to Revelation chapter 21, you'll see with me that the holy city is laid out in twelves. Look at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14. And here we see that the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And in them, the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Twelve foundations. Old Testament Israel. The New Testament. The twelve names of the apostles of the Lamb. There they are once again. In Revelation 21 and verse 21. If you go down to that. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. It just keeps on in twelves. Twelve multiplied by twelve. Perfection thousand, a hundred and forty-four thousand, all the saints of God from every age, the invisible church that we can't see, but that God sees and knows. Come back with me to that passage that I almost misquoted earlier in Second Timothy. And it's in Second Timothy chapter three chapter two and verse nineteen. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And here we see in verse 3 that we are We're seeing these angels symbolically holding back the winds, holding back God's judgment, holding back the final day, and saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. The whole of God's people, the entirety of the church, sealed against that day. You know, sometimes you do look at society, don't you? And you wonder why God hasn't poured out his awful judgment upon it. Yesterday in Belfast, we had the abomination of the so-called gay pride parade. A parade of 
filth and disgusting degradation through the open streets. What bothers me about it more than anything else is that people take their children to watch it. And there it is, walking through the streets, pride. And you say to yourself, why doesn't God, oh, that the Lord would pour out his judgment upon this world? Well, as we have seen, he already is pouring out his judgment upon this world in measured terms. But why doesn't he come? Why doesn't he bring this sinful world to an end? Why is it that he doesn't just simply come, the Lord Jesus, in all his glory and destroy the wickedness on this earth? Why is it? Here's why. Because the Lord won't come. and God's judgment won't be poured out until every single saint has been brought into God's kingdom. Every chosen one, every sinner for whom Christ died, brought into the kingdom of God. And when that last saint comes in, as we've already seen in chapter 6, we're talking about the martyrs. When the last martyr has died, and the last saint has been gloriously saved, And God's church is complete in every respect. That's when those angels will take away the restraints and the judgment of God will fall. But then who's this great multitude in verse 9? Because down in verse 9 it says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. Who's that? Well, remember that in verse 4, John only heard because that's the invisible church. That's the church that only God sees. God has it perfectly measured and numbered. But now John sees the church. And what he sees is the visible church. And he can't count it. It's so great. When he looks, he sees a vast crowd of people in heaven, so great that the eye could never number them. Think about verse 9 and verse 4 sitting parallel with each other. John's hearing the number of the, of the invisible church, and he's seeing the visible church as a vast multitude. And the difference is that only the Lord knows who is his. When he looks on his church, only he can number them, and his count is perfect, for every single Christian believer is known to God. But we don't get that information. When we see God's church, all that we see is a vast multitude of people, far more than we can count, saved by God's grace. And look at these people. Look at the people in this crowd. Go down to verse 9 again. And you can see that they're wearing the robes of the redeemed. They're standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palms in their hands. And they're yielding up praise unto Jesus, crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Incidentally, the word salvation there is preceded by the definite article. It is 
this salvation. It is this salvation. Hesoteria. It is the only salvation. There is no salvation in anyone else but Jesus. And there's no one else to be praised. In verse 12, when we hear the praise of these redeemed saints, they're saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. And they're saying it with the definite article before every one of them. If you look up your Greek New Testament, it is the blessing, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the honor, the power, the might, because only God is worthy to be praised. And there's only one way to heaven, and that's through the Lord Jesus. And they're joined by the heavenly host and all the angels and the great church, the throng of saints, stand around the throne and they fall on their faces and they worship God. Despite what the Jehovah's Witnesses thinks, John hears and he sees the Lord's church gathered unto him. And I'm quite sure that that would have been great comfort to those little isolated groups of believers scattered across the Roman world of John's day who were facing a terrible form of persecution under Rome. And there's a comforting message, a message from Jesus to his church that every single believer is known to God, protected by God, and on that last day will be able to stand. Have we time for another? Look at verse 13. And I want you to see the saints from the tribulation. Because John has now asked a question in verse 13. One of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And John in 14 replies, I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation. Now notice the absence of, of the definite article and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are these people? They're believers. They are the people who have done with the trials and the tribulations of this present world and have left it and are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Who are they? They're you. And they're me. My wife's father, late father now, was a great man for funerals. He never missed a funeral. Any funerals about the area, he was there. He once even went to a funeral of a man, of a woman rather, whose name he didn't even know. And I was sitting in the kitchen when he returned from that funeral and his wife said to him, did you find out the name of the woman that died? 
Imagine going to a funeral, you don't even know the name of the woman that died. But he did, and he would sit at the end of the table, and he would read the death notices in the paper every day. And as he read down through them, he would say, and I heard him say this on more than one occasion, oh, he would say, look at that, I see Sammy Jones has got away. Oh, look, I see that woman that you know from back at, you know, I see she's got away. The one that went to school with you, she's got away. Now, that's a perfect way to describe the death of the believer. Because we don't die with no hope. We get away. We get away from the sin. And we get away from the toil. And we get away from the temptation. And we get away from the persecution and the tribulations of this evil, sin-cursed world. And we get away to a place where those things are no more. We leave it all behind. And we go to be with Christ, which is far better. And that's what's happening here. Who are these people? They are those who got away. Those who have come out of great tribulation. Now, don't be attaching too much mystique to the term the great tribulation. I'm just dealing here with the text of Revelation, not with any eschatological scheme. But I do believe that as time reaches its conclusion, and I recognize there will be people here who will disagree with me, that's fair enough. But I do believe personally that as time reaches its conclusion, there will be a time of apostasy and falling away and great persecution of the saints. And I also believe I also know that some Christians believe that when the Lord returns, it will be post millennial and that there will be a time of peace and 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 tranquility. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy with you believing that. And there are other Christians who will speak of a great tribulation sometime in the future after the Lord's coming. And that's fair enough if that's what you want to believe. But despite those different eschatological views, persecution and tribulation have been the portion of Christians right throughout the years of the church. I cannot think of worse persecution and worse tribulation to come than the tribulation which was endured by the Christians in the Roman Empire. I cannot see how that would be. And John here is writing to saints who are undergoing that fierce persecution. And by extension, he's speaking to the whole church of every age. These saints are those who have come out of great tribulation. Simple as that. Doesn't need any further explanation. Out of the trials of this world, which we all face in some respect, and to be honest with you, frequently the trials that we have in this life and the tribulations we endure in this life come from my own inward sinfulness and rebellion in my own heart. And that is very great tribulation indeed. So here are these saints. And they are the Christians of every age who have come out of great tribulation. And they're before the throne of God. And so the scene, scene two of the book, reaches its climax. 
It starts in chapter 4, verse 1, where the new scene opens and John is brought symbolically into heavenly realms to see God the Father on the throne, to see the worship of the Lamb who was slain, to see the divine judgments that God has been and is pouring out upon this world, to see the martyrs protected by the shed blood of Christ, to see the terrible wrath of God, and to learn that on the great day of God's wrath, all of his saints will be secure and sealed and numbered and complete and gathered round the throne, and God's covenant people are forever in heaven with the Lord. And oh, what a day that will be. Because verse 16, verse 15 rather, tells us what their state will be on that day. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth upon the throne shall dwell among them. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Isn't it like a parallel passage to Revelation chapter 21? We've reached the end of time. And it's great comfort, great blessedness. And tonight, for those of us who are still in this world, it's wonderful to know that those saints which have gone before us, parents, grandparents, children, those who know and love the Lord, here they are right now, in the midst of that great throng of believers around God's throne, part of God's church. And God has already wiped away all the tears from their eyes. What a comfort for those of us who have lost loved ones, who've gone to be with Jesus. That brings us to the end of chapter 7. But of course the blessedness of the saints in heaven is not the end, is it? There's more to come. There's to be a new heaven and a new earth. For when this old earth is destroyed on that last day, it will be reconstructed. And there will be a new heaven. But we're not going to find out about that just yet. Because these scenes are overlapping. And each time they overlap, they project further into God's plan. And at this point, in the unveiling of God's purposes, there is nothing more to be said just yet. When I was at school, we learned proper grammar. Even though I was in a fairly rough school. And we did learn proper grammar. Nowadays, people talk about uh, when, when they're putting in web addresses and emails and things, they just talk about dots. And a sentence ends with a dot, doesn't it? But when I was at school, a sentence ends with a full stop. And in America, a full stop is called a period. 
You'll hear Americans being very forceful and they'll say to you, I've given my last word, period. And you know there's nothing more to follow. That's it. It's finished. He's finished saying what he's going to say. Well, now we've come to the end of this little scene. And the saints are in heaven. And there's a full stop. Because in chapter 8, verse 1, the seventh seal is opened. And there's a period. Silence in heaven. About the space of half an hour. Because John looks now in wonder and in awe at all that's been shown to him. And he can say nothing more. He opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. There is nothing more at this stage that we can say. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.